Well, don't you love the, uh, the hymns of Christmas? Uh, it's just wonderful to, to hear the gospel presented even as we uh, sing. I often think, uh, well, this hymn that we just sang is a lot better than the sermon <laughs> about to deliver. Uh, but uh, be that as it may, it's our opportunity to turn our hearts and minds uh, to God's word again, going to Isaiah chapter 9. It's a wonderful passage that we've been looking at with these uh, wonderful names of Jesus uh, presented to us. So we'll seek to understand better uh, the names that uh, he is given here in our text. So let me read uh, just before uh, we turn our thoughts to these, uh, the name in particular that we'll look at today, uh, Isaiah chapter 9, uh, verses 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Well, we've had an opportunity to uh, consider the names Wonderful Counselor and Mighty God as they're applied to Jesus, and we come today to the name Everlasting Father, or we might translate it Father Forever. Now, when we're Thinking about the names of Jesus, this is probably not one that, that comes to our mind right away, right? Uh, we're, uh, we're inclined to, to think of Jesus primarily in terms of being the Son, not Father. Uh, but I'd, I'd like to suggest that, that this name would not have seemed as strange to the people who first heard this message from Isaiah, uh, because they're, they're, in a, they're in a different time, in a sense, a different world and culture than we are, and so they would, they would hear this name perhaps a little bit differently than, than we do. So I want us to, to try to sort of get into their mindset for a moment. Uh, it's, a, it's always good, here's a good rule for, for interpreting scripture for you, it's always good to try to understand what this meant for the people that first received it and heard it. We want to make sure that, that our understanding of it uh, is in harmony with what it meant to God's people who first received it. And almost always, in fact I could say in every, in every circumstance, to understand it as they understood it actually helps us to, to more easily apply it to ourselves. So, so when you're studying scripture, don't jump right away to applying it to yourself. First say, okay, what did this mean? And in our context here, what did this mean for the people of Isaiah's day, the Jews of, 
of Judah, uh, the descendants of Israel, what did it mean for them? And then see how that relates to us. And of course, uh, that involves us in thinking about this word father, this name father. Very simple word in the Hebrew language, uh, av, or av, probably one of the first things a little child would learn to say. But it's a very significant term uh, from a biblical perspective. We first read this term, actually, in the context of the biblical accounts of creation. And specifically, in the narrative that, that describes the creation of the human race and the persons of the first man and the first woman, the husband and wife joined together by God. In that, in that narrative, Moses adds this inspired statement concerning the significance of the marriage relationship, Genesis 2.24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. With this, with this declaration, the basic unit of human civilization created in the image of God is designated by God to be a family headed by a father and mother. Now, notice a few key conclusions to be drawn here as you think about this verse. Let me read it again. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. One conclusion is that the man, you notice here, the husband, is to be the initiator and the establisher of the family unit. You know that by the grammar because the active words here have man as the subject. Okay, so... The active verbs here tell us, first of all, he has to leave his father and mother. Now, why is he told to do this? Is this because the scripture is telling us to uh, disrespect our parents? Well, of course not. That's, that's not the case. The Bible teaches exactly the opposite. Uh, is, is a mere physical relocation here, a, a geographical relocation in mind here? Well, no, that... That can't be true either, especially in the ancient world where, where aging parents were uh, taken care of by their children. So, so if the, this leaving isn't geographical and doesn't imply disrespect for parents, what does it mean? Well, I think we can understand what it means by looking at the next verb in the sentence. The next active verb is hold fast to his wife. Literally, the word there is be glued to, okay. be stuck to, okay? The man, in other words, now we see, shifts his primary allegiance from his parents to his wife. You see that? And inherent in that, then, are the two elements of initiative and responsibility, the order of this declaration is significant, too. Let's note that before we leave this verse. A man first acts independently of his parents, grasping his God-ordained initiative as a responsible agent. Then the man glues himself to his wife by covenantal vows, and only then is the marriage to be consummated by sexual union. 
In this way, then, God's law provides for the procreation of the human race to his glory. It's by fatherhood arising out of a husband's commitment to his wife and by extension to the children that God may give them. That's foundational to a right ordering of society. So, in the ancient world, when they hear the term father, when they think of the idea of fatherhood, they thought of responsibility for and leadership of those within a family or a household. These family units would be headed by, headed by fathers within building blocks. And, and, and you can think of this sort of, of continuing that idea of fatherhood up, up the scale, as it were. There's families, households, extended families, clans, tribes, and eventually a people brought together. And they're linked by this idea of common fatherhood. Listen for an example to uh, the instructions for numbering the people in numbers. Take a census of all the congregation of the people of Israel, be identified by their forefathers' name, Israel, by clans, by fathers' houses, according to the number of names, every male head by head. So, this naturally leads in the ancient world to an idea of political and social structures that likewise, likewise are to reflect this idea of fatherhood as being responsible for providing for, leading, guiding. And so the idea of father, the name father, can be applied to people in a variety of circumstances where they're doing that, where they're being responsible for people where they're sh showing care for people, like a shepherd for his flock, where they're, where they're leading people. So, for instance, we see Joseph, who's a Semite, okay, he's descendant of Israel, uh, serving in Egypt, he's serving an Egyptian pharaoh, and yet he, he says, when he's describing his position there, God has made me a father to pharaoh. Now, obviously, there's no biological connection there, and Pharaoh may well have even may have been older than Joseph. But Joseph, by taking responsibility for Pharaoh and his people, by caring for them through his excellent administration there in the political realm, is acting as father. Servants would, would speak to their masters using this name. The servants of Naaman the Syrian, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter, I mean 2 Kings chapter 5, come near him and say to him, My father. Okay, now there's undoubtedly no biological connection there. They're not children of Naaman who are his servants. They're servants, but they're looking to him as father. He's the head of the household. He's responsible for them. He leads them and guides them. David uses the term speaking of Saul. Okay, David's from a totally different tribe than Saul, but because Saul has been placed by God in the, is in the position of king, David views him as the father of the people. Okay, so he addresses Saul, my father. Now, now a king can sometimes address a prophet, his father, because the prophet, of course, stands 
as the mouthpiece of God, he's responsible to speak God's word to his people and to guide them and direct them. And so, for instance, when we see Elisha has fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father. So, uh, a person who assumes fatherly responsibilities, caring for, leading, guiding, is viewed in this, in this sense. And so we have what somebody has described as the idea of sort of nested households. So you've got the basic household that would, would have a father as a head. Then, then you've got those households that come together to form a tribal family or clan. And, and then you've got those tribal families or clans that come together then to form a people. Uh, again, connected by ancestry, by lineage, and by a common ruler. Uh, so when, when, when God chose to redeem a people for himself, he chose to make use of this idea of fatherhood and communicating to them what he was doing. And so when, when Jesus, the Messiah, is given the name Everlasting Father, or Father Forever here, the Israelites, the Jews, would have gone to this idea of Father as King, as Provider, as Responsible, for them. That's what's in view. And so that's what I want you to get as the basic meaning of this word and then look to how it relates to you. Uh, God has given earthly fathers temporary authority and responsibility for people. Uh, political leaders, in that sense fathers, to use the Israelite idea, have a temporary responsibility for people, but this one is father forever. He is king forever. That's what's being communicated to us. He has ultimate authority and responsibility over his people. And so we see this idea of God as father and king from the very beginning of God's dealings with his people, when he first calls into being a covenant people through Abraham, he, he uses this idea. Uh, for instance, in Genesis chapter 17, God says to Abram, Behold, my covenant, and remember that's promise, my promises is with you, and you shall be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He goes on to say, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. God is, in other words, calling it to being a family for himself. And so the Long before the covenant of covenant coming of the anointed one that we read about in our text comes this pulling together of a covenant people. And notice that the mention of a multitude of nations here. So we know that, that it's not merely the nation of Israel that's in view here. But it's a, a people, a family drawn from 
many different people groups. And notice, too, that it's, it's not an earthly covenant. It's not a covenant that has a role just for a certain period of time in history. Rather, it's an everlasting covenant. Now, now notice what that means for you as we begin to try to apply this ourselves. That means that if you're a member of the family of God, you have a connection with other people that transcends time and space. If you're called into the family of God, you have a connection with these people that we read about who are God's people in, in the Old Testament. With the people of God on the other side of the world with you. You've been brought together into a family. God doesn't save people by individual contracts. Okay, he, he, he doesn't go out and, and try to elicit you to sign on the dotted line on the contract. If, you, if, you'll, just, if you'll just sign here, then, then I can save you. He, he, he comes to you in terms of a covenant, of a promise. He, he adopts you. He causes you to be born again spiritually. And so... And so the, the God of the people in the Old Testament is the God of his people today. There's that unity that transcends time. There's that unity that transcends space today. So we're called then to remember that. Isaiah 51, listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek God. Okay, so if, if that's you, then you're to listen to this. Look to the rock from which you were hewn and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah, who bore you. So th there's a connection that you have that, that is eternal. Okay, keep that in mind as well. Your earthly connections with people are not permanent. Okay. You're perhaps under the authority of your parents right now, living at home, but that is not a permanent state. But God is calling people into an eternal relationship with one another. And so that enables Moses to talk to the people. In Deuteronomy, he's speaking to a generation 40 years after the Exodus. Okay? It's been 40 years since they were at Mount Horeb and entered into covenant with God. And yet when God, when God speaks through Moses to those people 40 years later, he speaks as if they were there. He speaks as if they saw this, even though many of them would not have even been born then. The Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. Okay, remember, everyone, everyone 20 years and up dies. Everyone 20 years and old and up at Mount Horeb had died. Moses is saying, you, you younger generation, the covenant was made with us. Not with our fathers did the Lord make this covenant, but with us, who are all of us here alive today. The Lord spoke with you face to face at the mountain, out of the midst of the fire, while I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord. For you were afraid because of the fire, and you did not go up into the mountain. He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Every generation, Moses is saying, 
affirms for itself, we were slaves. We were brought out. Okay, it, it's, a, it's a present reality for us. And so in a very real sense, we, we can say as we read the, the accounts of God's dealing with his people in the Old Testament, we were there, this our people. God is, God is showing us what he has done for us in salvation. So, one conclusion we can draw out of that is, as has often been said, God has no grandchildren. Okay? He has no nephews or nieces. He only has children. All believers are equally God's children. All, all believers are equally God's subjects as he is king. This is part of the truth behind Jesus' words to his followers in Matthew 23. You are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Now, this idea of God's people as family continues in the new covenant as well. This is not just a no covenant concept. Listen to this language of family or of household. Uh, Paul is writing to the Galatians, and he says, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially those who are of the household of faith. They're part of the family of faith. They have the same Father in Christ as Lord. He says to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3, I hope to come see you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household or the family of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now, now fix this firmly in your mind, because this unity of family that God creates when he gives you spiritual life transcends every earthly difference you may have with anybody else. That They're all secondary to this common common uh, relationship with God as Father. And so uh, Paul speaks of what was perhaps the, the, the greatest kind of separation between people in the ancient world, that between Gentile and Jew. The Gentiles and Jews were separated uh, ethnically, they were separated by religion, they were separated by language and culture. And, and yet Paul says, God has broken down this barrier between you. So he says, speaking to the Gentiles, you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. So you're separated. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinance, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And so he goes on to say, gives us this image of what he's talking about. You are not, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. You're, you're the same people.
people now, the same people. You're members of the household of God, the family of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. So, so Jesus, in his incarnation, being fully God and fully human, has drawn together people from every tribe, every tongue, every language. And, and so the scripture often speaks uh, of, of Jesus in this role of, of bringing this people into being and even uses the language of fatherhood. Uh, here, is, here is Isaiah speaking in uh, Isaiah chapter 53 underneath, uh, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He's speaking of Jesus' suffering when he says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. You hear what Isaiah is inspired to say there? That, that his suffering is going to produce children. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, that's the same terminology used for a woman in childbirth, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. He is bringing a people to being through his sacrificial death. John reflects the same kind of language in the beginning of his gospel when he's speaking of Jesus and says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He is the source of life, spiritually, as a father is a source of life to his children. And he goes on to say later in, in this introduction, to all who did receive him, that is Christ, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. His work brought about their spiritual birth. And so when Jesus appears to John in Revelation, he, he uses this kind of language of himself. In Revelation chapter 21, for instance, he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the, and the end. And he, he speaks of those who are his people, those who re respond and, and acknowledge him as Lord, I will be his God and he will be my son. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this language as well. And, and he goes back to the, the Psalms and, and takes the, the quote, I and the children God has given to me. And he says, this was fulfilled in Jesus. He is the one who has made us children of God. And John, of course, uh, speaks of himself. John records Jesus speaking of himself as father when, when he says to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, now that this is a good point to, to remind ourselves that, that this language of fathers and, and households and previous generations, this is speaking of a spiritual reality. Uh, you're not a member of God's covenant family because of your biology or because of your geography of, of your birth. If you were born in a place where you heard the gospel and you have believing parents, then that, that is a great blessing. Uh, 
and God uh, may well use that as a means to draw you to himself, but those earthly circumstances do not save you from the wrath of God against your sin. And if your earthly father and mother failed, abused, or abandoned you, neither does that cut you off from the grace of God and forgiveness. It's not those earthly realities that determine your life's meaning and purpose. So instead of defining yourself by the early earthly circumstances of your birth, God's word calls you to look beyond all earthly fathers to the true and perfect father, the Lord himself. Here's, here's how, how Paul speaks of God in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Do you catch what he's saying there? He's saying there's one true Father. There's the Father, the one and only true Father. And any ideas of fatherhood in an earthly sense are but dim reflections of his fatherhood. He is the eternal and true father, whom all earthly fathers are but dim shadows. So don't depend on your earthly experience of fatherhood to shape your understanding of God as father. Uh, instead, I'd suggest that, that the failures of your earthly fathers or your earthly parents actually can... can can serve to point you to the sufficiency of God as Father. So it's sort of like a, a shadow w would show you the outline of, uh, of what is real. Uh, so, so, for instance, you, you think about the sins of your parents in, in some regard, and, and, and hasn't the Word of God revealed to you that those things are wrong? It's Him speaking to you and saying that this is not this is not the way that a parent truly is to be. You see, the abuse of a parent is wrong because you know God as a parent is tender and kind. You know that a self-centered parent who neglected you was sinning against God because God is a parent who knows and meets the needs of his children. Projecting onto God the negative qualities of your parents would be like thinking that all food is bad because one thing upset your stomach. So, so let the, the failures of your own parents, or even your own failures as a parent, whet your appetite and increase your longing to discover God as your nursing mother and nurturing father. God is the true father, the kingly father who never fails in his, in his fatherly care. Psalm 68 says, his name is the Lord, father of the fatherless. A protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. Psalm 103, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Isaiah chapter 64, this can become your prayer. O Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are the potter. We are all the work of your hand. Even his discipline is proof that he's father, right? Proverbs chapter 3, verse 12. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. 
A father is, is characterized by tender love for his children, as that portrayed in Hosea chapter 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. I bent down to them and fed them. So far, a text identified Jesus, God incarnate as Father forever, is to say he is the fullest manifestation of all these qualities of God. Of course, many people reject this idea that Jesus is everlasting Father, the one worthy of all worship. Prophet Jeremiah identifies these people as idolaters who pretended that some material substance is their father. He says, they say to a tree, you are my father, and to a stone you gave me birth. And so that, that should lead you in, in your own thinking to, to ask yourself, how is it that I... I am one who can address Jesus as Father forever, my Lord and my God. Well, the answer, of course, is that it's by the sovereign will of God who has caused you to be born again through the Spirit's giving you life. You've been adopted by him, united with Christ Jesus by faith. Like a human parent adopting a child, God claims you as his own by his covenant promise. This is why, why God tells Moses to speak with this language to the Pharaoh. Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. And I say to you, let my son go, that he may serve me. So notice there that the singular is used. He's talking about a group of people, but he uses the singular pronoun he there. That So, so you can hear God saying here that all of his people are his firstborn, his privileged heir, regardless of your earthly parentage. If you've been born again, born spiritually, you enjoy the highest possible status for a human being. You are a firstborn child of God. And of course, this is, if this is a spiritual reality, what is the evidence? What is the evidence that you are a child of God. Well, it's that you resemble him, right? Do you look like him? Do you think the thoughts of God after him? Do you seek to do your heavenly father's will? Are you growing in his likeness, growing in godliness? Are you, are you those who seek after him? Over and over in the Old Testament, the prophets called God's people, God's people externally. They bore the name of Israel to a, a real spiritual relationship with God. It's not enough just to say the words. Jeremiah says to the people, have you just not just now called to me, my father? You are the friend of my youth. Will he be angry forever? Will he be indignant to the end? Are you using the language of father? You've spoken, you've said it, but you have done all the evil that you could. Their words are meaningless because there is no, no living out of that truth. Malachi says much the same thing when he says in Malachi chapter 1, A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am father, where is my honor? It, it, you say, 
that you're my children. You address me as father, but you're dishonoring me. And, and part of the way they're doing that is through their deceit toward one another. Have we not all one father, the prophet says? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Are you a child of God? Are you growing in likeness of him? Are you loving the brothers and sisters in the Lord? Now, now don't think that this means that your salvation somehow depends on your efforts. Okay? Take this in conclusion to heart. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, all these family members that have gone before us in the faith, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter, of our faith. Remember that language that he used in Revelation, I am the Alpha and Omega. Here it's reflected, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was said before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If you belong to Christ, he is the founder of your faith. He is the origin of your faith. What he did for you in redeeming you and saving you, that is, that is the basis for your faith. It's not what you've done. It's what he's done. So he's the, he's the source of our faith in the sense that his redemptive work made our belief possible. But he's also the one who sanctifies us by the same redemptive work. He enables us to grow in faith. He is the perfecter of our faith then. Paul says elsewhere, he who began a good work in you, you will be faith to complete it to the day of his appearing. So your faith begins with placing trust in Christ alone. And it continues on the same basis through a walk of faith. As you're seeking to look to him as your father, your king, your lord. And, and, and there's the promise implicit in this here when it says that Christ is the perfecter of your faith. There's a, an implicit promise there that he will enable you to persevere. Uh, Spurgeon, in, in thinking about our text, says that, applying it to Christ, he says that, that, that Christ is the father forever, and there is no unfathering of him, and there is no unchilding of us as his people. That once you've been made a child of God, you're forever his child, and his faithfulness will sustain you. So this, this, this child, this son that has come, it is, is no longer just an infant in a cradle. He is the Lord, the Father forever. He calls us to be his obedient children. He calls us to glorify him in all things. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, help us to understand better what it is to be your people. Help us to know how that applies to 
uh, our schoolwork, to our jobs, to our use of our free time, to our relationships. Uh, in all these areas of life, Lord, help us to be looking to you as the one who is our eternal Father, who is our Father forever, uh, who is has brought us into relationship with himself as his children, and he calls us to walk in his ways. Uh, enable us to do that, Lord, by your grace and your mercy, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.